J.D. John, F.J. at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on September 14th of 2014 under the headline, Legendary Chief Bigfoot as Elusive as His Modern Namesake. Here we go. Nearly every Oregonian knows a story or two about Bigfoot, the legendary and elusive ape creature who supposedly lives deep in the wilderness and serves as an inspiration to cryptozoologists and bad reality TV producers alike nationwide. More than a few Oregonians have claimed to have seen the elusive fellow, or at least to know someone who has. Down in the desert country of the southeast border of Oregon, though, if you ask the right people, you'll hear about another Bigfoot, one Chief Bigfoot. Very little is really known about Chief Bigfoot. Even his name is questionable, and nobody really knows if he was an actual Indian chief. But he was one of the participants in the Native American raids that years later would ripen into the Bannock War, in the high lonesome country where the borders of Oregon and Idaho and Nevada come together, and for some time he was a pretty successful raider. Chief Bigfoot's presence was first detected at the scene of an Indian raid in 1862. Over the following year or two, parties sent to the scenes of massacres and raids and moonlight stock thefts started noticing that one of the perpetrators had left freakishly large footprints behind. Historian John Haley quotes T.J. Sutton, an Indian fighter attached to an expedition in 1863, describing the tracks. Quote, We also discovered and measured Bigfoot's track, which was 17 and one-half inches long by six inches wide, Sutton wrote. At that time, we had no knowledge of the man, but the enormous size of his track attracted our attention and so roused our curiosity that careful measurements of its dimensions were made and no little discussion indulged in as to whether it was a human track. Sutton soon became more familiar with the mammoth moccasin tracks. Soon, it seemed, Bigfoot's footprints were at every crime scene in southeast Oregon and southwest Idaho. But then this may have had something to do with the obvious interest which the locals were taking in the tracks. Young lads, historian Bill Gulick relates, soon tumbled to the idea of making a moccasin 17 inches long and using it to leave Bigfoot tracks at the scenes of their pranks. Perhaps other marauding bands of Bannocks had the same idea. Over the years from 1863 to 1868, Chief Bigfoot started taking on some of the trappings of myth. Gulick found about a dozen references to his exploits in newspaper archives, all of them second-hand or hearsay. Nobody seems to have witnessed the man in person. The newspapers claimed he was not a true Indian chief, but a part-white, part-Indian desperado who had risen to command of local Indians sworn to exterminate the white settlers and gold miners in the area. Traces of Chief Bigfoot vanished after 1868, after the end of General George Crook's campaign to force all the Indians onto reservations. During that campaign, Gulick says, Bigfoot was reported to have been killed a half-dozen times. Perhaps one of those times it really was him. But according to T.J. Sutton's account, quoted in Haley's book, the mysterious marauder actually died that year at the hands of a highway robber named John Wheeler, who presumably was after the big chief for the hefty bounty on his head. 
Chief Bigfoot's encounter with Wheeler is told in high dramatic style by a writer in the Idaho Statesman in November 1878, ten full years after the event it claims to recount, and, by the way, several years after Wheeler was safely dead and therefore unable to object. As a side note, Wheeler was killed trying to rob a stagecoach in Arizona. Gulick refers to this as, quote, a piece of folklore that incorporates many tall tales of the day lightly salted with facts. And he is surely right about that. But it is the only record we have, and for many years it was believed to be accurate. In fact, there's a plaque commemorating the alleged event on Idaho Highway 45 near the north shore of the Snake, put there by a local pioneer society. According to the story, Wheeler set out to trap Bigfoot in a canyon south of the Snake River in Idaho Territory. When he captured his quarry, a gun battle broke out, in which the mammoth Indian was mortally wounded. As he lay dying, the story says, Bigfoot first drank a quart and a half of water and a pint of whiskey, both offered to him by his killer. Then he told his story. His name, he said, was Star Wilkinson, a member of the Cherokee Nation back east. He was half white and a quarter each Cherokee and African American. He was a giant of a man, nearly seven feet tall and over 300 pounds with a 56-inch chest and, of course, 17-inch long feet. He'd come east on a wagon train most of the way to Oregon, but as they neared their goal, trouble had broken out. He'd fallen in love with a young lady on the train and asked her father for her hand in marriage. According to this account, the father made it clear to young Star that it was all well and good to be kind to a young, friendly, quote-unquote, half-breed, but that under no circumstances would he allow his daughter to marry such an inferior creature. Then one of the other young men on the wagon train started moving in on the girl, and perhaps motivated by a speech from her father, she shifted her affections to him. A few days later, Star found himself rounding up stray stock with his rival. Words were exchanged. Then the rival pulled a pistol and shot him in the side as Star closed in with his bare hands and grabbed him by the throat and throttled him to death. Then, knowing he was as good as dead back at the wagon train, Star took it on the lamb and fell in with some bannock raiders and thrashed them with his bare hands and was accepted as their leader and launched the five-year reign of terror that had ended with Wheeler's gunshots. I am uh, delivering this with all the melodrama that it truly seems to deserve as a story. How much of it is true? Well, it's entirely possible. In fact, quite likely that the whole thing was made up by a journalist looking for a little fame. It is a fine and delightful piece of frontier folklore, but that's really all it is. Well, that leaves us with little more than a name, some big footprints, and a whole lot of sketchy secondhand information. A situation very familiar to scholars interested in that other notorious Oregon recluse known as Bigfoot, good old Sasquatch. We can only hope that when some modern-day Homer finally gets around to writing a mythology for the old Oregon country, he or she will include a story of the two Bigfoots meeting, maybe one summer day in a juniper or aspen forest on the flank of the Steens and making common cause against the march of settlement. By the way, some historians think the city of Nampa, Idaho was named after Chief Bigfoot, Nampa being a word from the Bannock dialect that supposedly means Big Moccasin. Others, pointing out the unlikeliness of naming a city after an outlaw raider, believe the name is a coincidence. Key sources in this story have included works by Bill Gulick, John Haley, and the Walla Walla Union Bulletin. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. 
You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff. Plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.